I hope you have your Bible open to the book of Nehemiah. Today I'll refer you to portions of chapters 3 and 4. So I hope you have your scriptures ready and I'll prompt you as we go through those verses. It's too much to read all of the content and I encourage you to do that as you study throughout the week in preparation uh, in your own Bible study and devotional life. Let's bow together. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And God's people said, Amen. Jim Collins is the best-selling author of a number of books. Several are, called, are um, entitled Good to Great, Built to Last, and How the Mighty Fall. They're staples for anyone in leadership, whether in business, government, or church. In How the Mighty Fall, Collins helps us to see how companies that were one, uh, once leaders in sales, growth, and return on investment found themselves in sharp decline, or worse, out of business. One of the companies he mentions in this book is Circuit City. It's a case study that he does. Some of you are familiar with that company. It used to be based here in Richmond. And I won't go into more detail there, but it's an interesting read in case, you, in case that's something you'd like to uh, review. But in the book, Collins asks, why is it that two companies can have the same business model and yet one will fall and the other does not. Why is that, he says. And in his research, he identifies five stages of decline that lead to this, and they are as follows. First, hubris, that's H-U-B-R-I-S, hubris born of success. Two, undisciplined pursuit of more. Three, Denial of risk or peril. Four, grasping for salvation. And five, capitulation to irrelevance or death. And you can imagine the graph that he gives you. It, it kind of um, looks like this. And then there's a gradual uh, decline all the way to the fifth one. Collins states that hubris in the, the first one is defined as excessive pride that brings down a hero or alternatively outrageous arrogance that inflicts suffering upon the innocent. Hubris is excessive arrogance that leads a person to believe that he can do no wrong. And Collins says that hubris born of success, meaning pride and arrogance born of success, is the first signal that a company is facing decline and could experience its end. The biblical record is very clear that Nehemiah was the kind of leader who led from humility, not from hubris or outrageous arrogance. Listen to some of the forms of hubris that Collins describes. Undisciplined leaps into areas where a company cannot become its best. A company's pursuit beyond what it can deliver with excellence. Bold, risky decisions that fly in the face of evidence that is conflicting. Denying that risk even exists, even in the face of external threats or internal erosion. An arrogant neglect of the what 
versus the why. Nehemiah knew the what. He knew that God had given him a vision to rebuild the walls and the gates around ancient Jerusalem, protecting the sacred temple of God, the holy city, and the identity of the Jewish people. But he never forgot the why. He knew the what, and he never forgot the why. The people of his homeland. People came first. Listen to a story that Jim Collins tells in his book, and I think that you'll see that it makes a definite connection to the person and the leadership nature of Nehemiah. In the late 1950s, a small unknown company had a very big vision to bring discount retailing to small-town America. It became one of the first companies to bet its future on this concept, and it built a substantial early lead by adopting everyday, everyday low prices for everything, not just loss leader items to lure in customers. Its visionary leader created an ethos of partnership with his people, engineered sophisticated information systems, and cultivated a performance-driven culture. With store managers reviewing weekly scorecards at 5 a.m. every Monday, not only did the company decimate Main Street stores in small towns, but it also learned how to beat its primary competitor, Kmart, in head-to-head -head competition. Every dollar invested in this company stock at the beginning of 1970 and held through 1985 grew more than 6,000%. How'd you like that for your 401k? So what's the company? If you answered Walmart, good try, but wrong answer. The answer, Ames Department Stores. And you're like, Pastor Bob, I've never heard of Ames. Ames began with the same idea that eventually made Walmart famous, and it did so four years before Sam Walton opened its first store. Over the next 20 years, both companies experienced exponential growth. So where is Ames? Dead and gone. Never to be heard from again. Walmart, however, is alive and well. What happened? What distinguished Walmart from Ames? I believe it's leadership. A big part of this lies in Sam Walton's deep humility and learning orientation. In the late 1980s, a group of Brazilian business people bought a retail chain and they wrote 10 CEOs in America and asked them if those CEOs would be willing to meet with, the, uh, meet with them. These were the Brazilian business people so that they could learn as much as they could about what it meant to be successful in retailing. And out of all 10 of the CEOs that they wrote, there was only one who responded, Sam Walton. When the Brazilians deplaned in Bentonville, Arkansas, a kindly white-haired gentleman came out to the tarmac and approached them. Can I help you? We're looking for Sam Walton, they said. And he said, that's me. Come on. And he piled all the Brazilian business people in their suits into his pickup truck. 
alongside his dog, old Roy. Can you imagine? Can you just picture this? And over the next few days, Walton sat with them and asked them all sorts of questions about Brazilian culture, people, and about retailing in uh, that part of South America, Latin America. And often he did so while standing at the sink, washing up and drying the dishes from dinner. Finally, the Brazilians realized from Walton that he sought first and foremost to learn from them, not the other way around. Sam Walton put people first. He put others first, and he was a lifelong learner. He did not neglect the why for the what. Over his lifetime, he instilled a sense of purpose and core values and humility into the nature of his company and the culture of his company. Now, Walmart's not perfect. There are, you know, every company has its own problems. But humility of leadership, not prideful arrogance from Sam Walton led to its success. With Ames, it was the pursuit of quick growth, prideful arrogance, and undisciplined pursuit of more and more and more that led to its downfall. I believe that humility of leadership defines Nehemiah. He was not born from a priestly or royal family. He was an average man from a Jewish family, and his ancestors had been carried off into Babylonian exile, and he was raised under that empire as the Persians took over. By the time of Nehemiah, the Babylonians had been defeated and overthrown, and the Persians were led by King Cyrus. The temple had been rebuilt, albeit a smaller temple than Solomon's temple. Ezra had brought reform to the people and a renewed understanding of the importance of Torah, the Word of God. And then around 445 BCE, before the time of Jesus, Nehemiah was captured by God's vision to rebuild Jerusalem's walls and its gates. And we said the last couple of weeks, quoting George Bullard, we don't catch a vision. Instead, we are caught by God's vision. And I like the image of being captured by God's vision that ignites a fire deep within the belly of our souls. Nehemiah spent months fasting and praying about his concern for the trouble and disgrace of the people and its broken down walls. As a cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, the one, one of the kings that followed uh, Cyrus some years later, God had given him a front row seat to that king, but he did not take advantage of his position. Rather, the king himself noticed one day that Nehemiah looked sad and asked him what was troubling him. The king sensed Nehemiah's sadness of heart. Nehemiah's first response was to tell of how deeply saddened he was because of what had happened to Jerusalem, the report that he had heard of it having been destroyed and that its walls were in shambles and gates, they would have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to Nehemiah, well, what is it that you want? And before Nehemiah responded to the king, he prayed. And then, as we said last Sunday, that was reflexive. He didn't have to think about it. He just prayed. 
He had cultivated a habit of prayer since his upbringing that would not depart from his spirit. And then the king ended up granting Nehemiah the request that he had to go to his homeland to rebuild its walls. Not only that, he gave him lumber from his own forests to be able to rebuild the gates and a home for himself. And it's just amazing that, that the king did more than Nehemiah could have ever dreamed of and gave him safety to make the some 980 mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem. It's amazing. In our study of chapter 2, we saw how Nehemiah went out to survey the land uh, to get an idea of what needed to be done. Like it or not, it was this, uh, the, the dark consequence of the disobedience for centuries that the people had for God. But God helped through the prophet Jeremiah communicate that that was not his permanent will for the people. That God had brought judgment, but God had also promised restoration and hope that God would empower Nehemiah to be one part of this greater promise for his people and for us too. Well, Nehemiah shared his vision with some of the others in the family of God in that area, trusted noblemen from the city. He told them about how the gracious hand of God had been upon him and what the king had done and all of these wonderful things. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, they said, let's start rebuilding. And they did. And you heard us talk about how some of the other leaders outside of the family of God were opposed to what was happening. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They were officials from other territories in the Persian Empire. But even though they opposed what was happening, they did not get in Nehemiah's way. And chapter 3 presents the orderly process that Nehemiah followed. He had already gotten permission from the king to do all of this. He got the materials, and he began to recruit people. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, to help with the process. He even enlisted the high priest and his fellow priests. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, listen to these words. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananiah. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. So if you look at the map of Jerusalem in your screen, there in the corner of your screen, in uh, Nehemiah, the Sheep Gate was the, in the top right-hand side of your map, the northeast uh, section of the wall. Nehemiah enlisted Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellowship to fellow priests to work on the sheep gate. And it was called the sheep gate not only because it was closest to the sheep markets where lambs were sold for sacrifice, uh, but that's where the sheep were cleaned and brought in for those sacrifices. There is significance here. Later, that pool was known as the pool of Bethsaida. And this gate led to Golgotha, the pathway or the journey that Jesus took when he was led to be crucified. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. 
They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananiah. This is the only gate that was consecrated because it was used for religious purposes. It was the only one that the priests were called to work on specifically. And it was the only door out of all ten mentioned here that had no bolts or bars. It's, it was a holy purpose. And that's where Nehemiah started because he knew the significance of that holy gate. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 31 and 32, you hear these words. Going full circle. Next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So there were ten gates. And if, if you remember your little map, the sheep gate's in the top right-hand corner. And they worked counterclockwise, and Nehemiah positioned workers on each of those ten gates, and they came full circle all the way back to the sheep gate, the beginning and the end, full circle. And Nehemiah took people from all walks of lives and uh, kinds of talents and backgrounds to repair the wall and the gates. And not only that, but Nehemiah jumped right in and did some of the work himself. If you look at the end of chapter 4, you can uh, see how he was intricately involved in what was happening. He didn't just tell people what to do. He gave leadership, servant leadership, and joined right in doing some of the work himself. Nehemiah was not the kind of leader that would just bark out commands. He did not ask people to do that which he wouldn't do himself. He led by example. That's humble leadership. That's not prideful hubris or arrogance. They had not been long at work when the conflict came. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, they were at it again. And this time they would not let up. Listen to these words that I read from chapter 4 and listen to the bullying taunting that went on. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and became incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. We call that today bullying. Sadly, Nehemiah was not the only person to face this kind of conflict. Jesus faced it from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, as well as from the Herods, and even from some of the people who followed him welcoming him with great hosannas when he came into Jerusalem that last week, but those hosannas turned quickly to crucify, crucify. The bullies in Nehemiah remind me of some familiar faces. Maybe they are to you too, like Biff and Back to the Future. Or the playground bullies in the movie A Christmas Story. 
or the boss in Christmas vacation. You remember him. And Draco Malfoy in Harry Potter. And what about Regina George in Mean Girls? Bullies, bullies, bullies. This is what Nehemiah was facing. And some of you know exactly what that's like. Many of you have been bullied. And I don't want you to be ashamed of that. Don't let somebody else cause you to think different about yourself. Usually bullies are insecure and jealous people. They try to make up their own for their own insecurities by taking it out on others. They are the kind of people we talked about earlier in the sermon who have an attitude of hubris, prideful arrogance. If you've been bullied, whether social media or online somehow or in class or in the neighborhood or even at work, please seek help. If you're a young person, tell your parents, tell your guidance counselor, tell your teacher, talk to one of the pastors here at, at our church, and we will help you to get the right kind of help. You don't need to go through this alone. Adults, if you've experienced the same kind of bullying, maybe in the workplace or even in a relationship, please seek help from a counselor or one of our pastors. Don't go at this alone. Nehemiah did not go at it alone. He had all of his fellow people to come alongside and help him protect one another as they did this work. And he also prayed about it. Listen to what he prayed in chapter 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And then Nehemiah prayed again in verse 9, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And then in verse 14 and 15, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the peoples, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. And verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each returning to each to do our own work. Nehemiah did not let his adversaries stop him from doing the work of God. He relied on prayer, God's word, others around him, and the good common sense that God had given him. And I, I won't, uh, for the sake of time, go in and read all of the, this next section. But I want you to see verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their own work with one hand and a weapon in the other. And then Nehemiah said, the man who sounded the, the trumpet stayed with me. And if that trumpet sounded there, everybody knew that there would be danger and they would all rush to help. There are a few lessons of leadership, I think, that we can learn from chapters 3 and 4 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was devoted to God, humble, and he was a servant leader for sure. He was unifying, building consensus, 
He was empowering, helping people to use their gifts, their abilities, their talents. And he was steadfast in doing the will of God. I pray that some of us would learn from Nehemiah some lessons of leadership, that we can be a servant leader like him. Let me conclude. It's easy to consider the story of Nehemiah ancient history, something that happened all those years ago, 2,500 years ago, with no relevance to us today. After all, he was just rebuilding a wall, doing construction or renovation work. What does that have to do with our faith, Pastor Bob? It's not like some of the miracles we've read about in the Bible. No sea was divided, nobody walked on water, no one was healed or brought back from the dead. So what's the point? As a leader, I believe that Nehemiah exists the qualities and the character that God is looking for in us Christians. It's a story of what it means to be a humble, unselfish servant leader. It's about the why behind the what. It's a story that hubris is never the way of God and humility always is. Nehemiah was part of a greater redemption story of mankind. He was able to restore the walls around the temple. And someday, Jesus would enter the east gate, which was the gate adjacent to Gethsemane. It's the gate that he came in the last week of his life on Palm Sunday. And when he was led to Golgotha, the cross, he was led out of the sheep gate. The Lamb of God who was to be slain for all of the people to forgive and redeem and restore. Nehemiah had a part in something far greater than he could ever have imagined. And you and I worship this God, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who also said that I'm a good shepherd and the sheep shall know my voice and follow me. Our relationship with Jesus is the starting point of everything. Just as Nehemiah started at the sheep gate, that holy place where the lamb were brought in for sacrifice and went full circle and finished there at the sheep gate, so Jesus Christ is the place we start. He said, I am the gate, and I want all people to come in and find good pasture. Everything starts and ends with Jesus. He said, I am the gate. He is our high priest who builds and consecrates this foundation gate of salvation in our lives. And the writer of Revelation, John, says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve day and night at His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb of God at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Amen.